0: Hello, welcome to my podcast, A Parallel, the Chinese Culture Revolution and the French Revolution. This is Episode 7, Never the Fault of the People. Last time, I discussed the National Assembly and its efforts against the Catholic Church. It confiscated church land and property to help pay the nation's enormous debt and expenses. The National Assembly also passed the civil constitution of the clergy, turning this church into an arm of the state and forcing the clergy to swear an allegiance in support of the revolution. This resulted in deep divisions in the country that were long-lasting and also prompted violence. There were mass migrations by the elites and the nobles attempting to flee France. From the year 1790 through the year 1791 saw the rise of political clubs and that political factions were beginning to appear in the National Assembly. In China, the Cultural Revolution Group publicly encouraged and supported arming the Red Guards. By the end of 1967, China was in a full-fledged civil war. Then Mao Zedong ordered the violence to stop, and he got the military involved. In mid-1968, Mao launched another campaign intending to socially elevate him as a great leader. I also discussed about the revolutionary committees that they replaced the Red Guard. And these committees were as ruthless and violent, and maybe more so, than the Red Guards. There were more party officials targeted, arrested, and expelled or executed. And Chairman Mao increasingly relied on the use of his military to further his goals. In this episode, I want to talk about King Louis XVI's attempt to flee France. Also, France finally got its constitution. Foreigners were now being targeted in China. And in China, there were more purges of party leaders. And I will get to the infamous Up to the Mountains campaign, which sent millions of students to the countryside. I want to begin the episode with a quote from Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, who lived contemporaneously as the events in France and Europe were occurring. Quote, A great revolution is never the fault of the people, but of the government. End of quote. The flight of the king and his family from France was the second great revolution turning point of the French Revolution. Of course, we know it failed. On the night of June 20th, 1791, wearing disguises, the Royal Family fled the Tuileries Palace. Their destination? Montmini, in northeast France near the Belgian border. Their plan? was to receive assistance there, eventually going to Austria with the hopes of garnering support to eventually reclaim his throne. However, the next day, the king was recognized and arrested at Verans, France, near Verdun, a name we might all recognize as many famous battles and theater of war occurred there the royal family was brought back to Paris in the Tuileries Palace. The king had badly underestimated the popularity of the revolution, and the people of Varennes were eager to return the king and the royal family to Paris. The escape attempt only made things worse for the king. His attempt to flee France proved that he did not support the reforms put forth by the National Assembly. The king claimed, at the time, he was only merely going to Montmeny to negotiate with the revolutionaries from a safe distance. However, most everyone believed the king was emigrating to Austria and to return to France with Austrian troops and force his return to power if necessary. However, things only got worse for the king. Soon after it was discovered that he had fled Paris, his Tuileries apartment was searched. The king had intentionally left behind documents that declared in great detail his dissatisfaction with the events in France and denouncing all that had been done since the revolution began and placing most of the blame on the Jacobins. The documents showed the king's plan was to recapture the nation. This was seen as treasonous. It also looked as if the king wanted to abandon his nation in the greatest hour of need. He would be viewed forever as an enemy of the people. There were some, particularly European royalty outside of France, that were alarmed over his physical treatment. Queen Antoinette's brother, the Holy Roman Emperor Leopold II, along with other royalty, put forth the Declaration of Pilnitz on August 27, 1791. It warned there would be severe consequences if the royal family was harmed. To the revolutionaries in France, they felt this was a declaration of war and their intentions to invade France. The declaration caused suspicion and fear that foreign invasion was inevitable, and the paranoia relit the revolutionary foment. There were immediate cause to depose the king. However, the National Assembly feared and fought against that. There was even an incredulous story from the National Assembly that the king was forced by his advisors to flee. Basically, the hope was not to blame the king for his actions, but it did not work. The more radical factions of the National Assembly used the king's attempt to escape to draft a petition that he should be replaced and that he abdicate and his successor chosen by popular election. That effort by the radicals finally, irretrievably, split the Jacobins from the rest of the National Assembly. On July fifteenth, 1791, the National Assembly voted that the king could, re- could retain his throne under a constitutional monarchy. When news reached Paris on July seventeenth, 1791, protesters and rioters descended on Champ de Mâs and rallied against that decision. The demonstrations got out of hand. And it was enough that Lafayette used the militia to suppress what has become known as the Massacre of the Chône de Mas. Actually, it wasn't really a massacre if your definition of a massacre includes more than 50 persons. Nevertheless, it has gone down in history as one of the infamous events of the French Revolution. It certainly greatly diminished the reputations of the American war hero, Marquis de Lafayette, and the Paris mayor, Bali. Continuing with the latest purge efforts from Chairman Miles Latest and the Revolutionary Committees, resulted in many top cadre from 1968-1969 being exposed, beaten, or murdered, or committing suicide. But members of the CCP were not the only victims this round. Anyone that had any foreign connections were immediately suspect. This not entirely surprising development seemed to hit Shanghai proportionally harder than any other area of China. Shanghai, up to the communist takeover in 1949, was a world-renowned cultural and international hub. The identification and classification of suspicious persons in Shanghai would nearly include everyone. Chen Yoshin is an example of this. In 1968, he was the chairman of the orchestra department of, at the Shanghai Municipal Orchestra. The orchestra attracted some of the most renowned foreign-born musicians and composers. But just because of that fact alone, Chen Yoshin was implicated as a traitor, a counter-revolutionary, and he ultimately committed suicide as a result. His story was not unique. Shanghai, at that time, also had international financial centers. Associating oneself with any of those centers was also enough to bring suspicion and ruin. An emphasis was also put on influential intellectuals at universities. They were not allowed to think outside of the box. It was all about indoctrination, and re-education. Estimates vary, but in Beijing alone, 100,000 were victims of this latest go-around of purges. In every province, the Revolutionary committees settled old scores. Rural areas were not spared either. Torture chambers, yes, torture chambers even sprang up. Confessions or implications were extracted. Hundreds of homes were raided and ransacked, looking for incriminating evidence. Agriculture was neglected. Output plummeted. I could go on and on with the terror and the horror, all at the hands of Mao's revolutionary committees. On September 3rd, in the year 1791, the long-awaited Constitution was completed. It was given to King Louis XVI. And on the 13th of September, he accepted it. And many at that point thought the revolution was over. On September 30th, 1791, the National Assembly came to an end. It had accomplished much in its 26 months of existence. Some last today. But it also bears responsibility for the extreme measures that came to the revolution later on. One was the split in the church that it caused. That had fomented some of the violence Many of France's citizens would not give their full support to the revolution because of the schism the assembly caused with the church. The new National Assembly that sat on October 1, 1791, was vastly different in composition from the first. Gone were the nobles and the clerics that comprised roughly half of the first National Assembly. All of the new 745 deputies were fairly well off, most of them of property and of the legal profession. Under the Constitution of 1791, France was a constitutional monarchy. The king had a royal veto and could select his ministers. The new assembly consisted of about 165 constitutional monarchists, or or the right. There were also about 330 Chirangists or liberal Republicans and Jacobins or the radical left and about 250 deputies with no affiliation. They started with an empty treasury, not much of an armed forces and lots of insecurity throughout the country due to chronic riots. They also had to deal with the huge problem of émigrés. Despite the former assembly granting amnesty to returning émigrés, the flow of émigrés from France steadily increased. Finally, on November 9, 1791, the new assembly passed an edict that émigrés had to return to France By January 1st, 1792, or they would be deemed guilty of a capital crime. The king, however, in one of his first chances to do so, vetoed the measure. By December of 1968, Mao Zedong realized the Cultural Revolution was spinning out of control. Industrial production had fallen by 12% in just the last two years. Mao's answer for all of this was the 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 up-to-the-mountains-and-down-to-the-countryside movement, as it was called. He dispatched military to schools, factories, and government agencies to force millions of Red Guards to relocate to the countryside. Mao had also grown weary of the Red Guard's factional differences and fighting. On January 22, 1968, Mao ordered the students to go down to the countryside to be re-educated by peasants. He spun the movement as a tool for leveling society. In fact, his motive was to disperse the Red Guards across the country and to stop the troublemaking. Millions of students emptied China's cities and transported to remote areas. Witnesses in Beijing, then, described hundreds of thousands of students marching to the train station while revolutionary songs blasted from loudspeakers. Many students were eager to go, having been cooped up in their dorm rooms for months. Others believed the relocation was necessary for them to understand the revolution. Others thought the forced exiles were bullshit. There was resistance. After all, the exiles were intended to be permanent. That's right. The students, when they left their homes, had to surrender their registration cards and could no longer legally reside in the city that they had originated. In Hunan province, between one-fourth to one-half of the students pretended not to hear the call to the countryside and did everything possible to avoid being exiled at tremendous risks and hoping it would blow over. Once news got back to the cities of the circumstances the first bunch of exiled students faced, resistance only increased. The stories only cast doubt on whether the program would ever have a good outcome. Living and working conditions were minimal at best, deplorable and dangerous at the worst. The students were immediately taken advantage of by unscrupulous local officials. Many had their possessions immediately confiscated. Wood for cooking and shelter was scarce in many places that had already never recovered from deforesting during the great leap forward. Food, likewise, was hard to come by as locals had to share and compete with the students for already scarce products. The countryside movement only exacerbated it, and the food issues were everywhere, not just in the rural areas, but hit the rural areas the hardest. What food many of the students acquired usually was rotten or infested with bugs. Not surprisingly, disease became an issue for the students. Malnutrition among them made the disease and spread worse. It was apparent from the beginning of the countryside movement that peasants did not want the students and in some cases took advantage of the students. Worst cases, there were physical and sexual assaults. Female students were sexually abused. Many did not even bother to complain reported. There were half-hearted measures to punish some of the perpetrators, but it did little to stop the assaults. For the eight or so years of the countryside movement, an average of two million students each year were exiled. After Mao's death, some of the students were not able to return home, unable to obtain an urban residency permit. In total, close to 20 million students had been exiled during the duration of the Cultural Revolution. Many have argued the CCP saw a way to resolve China's population problem with the forced exiles. Maybe. In the next episode, please continue to listen as we are far, far away from the closing scenes of these revolutions. Thank you. It has been A pleasure.